Right. Um, if you have your Bibles, would you please uh, open them or turn them on and uh, turn to Mark uh, chapter 6? And we'll be beginning in uh, verse 53. This is the word of the Lord. When they had crossed over, they landed at the Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus, and they ran throughout that whole region and carried the stick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces, and they begged him to let him touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. And the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law, who had come from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus, and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating food with defiled hands? And he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, if anyone, has, uh, if anyone declares that what might have been given uh, to their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother. And thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called to the crowd and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Why are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Well, um, let's talk for a minute about rules, <laughs> rules that get in the way of the actual purpose of what they're trying to achieve. And uh, you read, we just, Joshua read for us an example here uh, that we're going we're gonna to pick at on the way to an even deeper, deeper issue that Jesus is raising. Um, 
but, but at least part of, part of what's in view here is this idea that there are certain rules that we construct as people that end up actually being counterproductive to the thing we're trying to do. And I can think of no better example, it's just an example that I feel like is constantly pervasively in our faces than, than like human bureaucracy. Um, specifically like government bureaucracy. Uh, and most government bureaucracies exist for, I, I, I would say most of them exist for noble purposes, to try to protect things, to try to have proper protocols, to make sure things don't slip through the cracks, to make sure enough eyes are on something so that uh, things don't go sideways. But it, it's, it's just inevitable that the more these things stack up, the more they end up being actual barriers to people getting the help that they really need. Um, I can th has anyone seen, it's a really weird movie, has anyone seen that, I don't know what year, it was in the 80s, it's called Brazil by Terry Gilliam. A few of you have seen Brazil. Brazil is, I think it's an amazing film, um, worth your time, but it depicts this like dystopian, nightmarish future where everything is just saddled with bureaucracy and I, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but the scene sticks out of my mind where a character needs like their air conditioning unit fixed and these two repair guys come to fix the unit and they like can't even take off panels to look at the thing because they don't have the proper form that has to, you know, it's just this like, it's hysterical and it's just this cascading uh, array of bureaucratic inefficiency that results in like, like basically like one, really just like one thing needed to be plugged in, but it was like this whole cascade of paperwork that wouldn't allow it to happen. That's what happens with us, with our species we humans, happens a lot. Um, and we're gonna see it, uh, we're gonna see it take a really ugly form here in a second that Jesus, Jesus calls out. Uh, but before that, just a minute of recap, and Mark's actually gonna do the recap for us. This first section, as we've been working through the gospel according to Mark now for months, uh, we're in chapter six, going into chapter seven, and there've been a couple passages like this that kind of serve as these summaries of what's came before and, and, and then they're kind of a, a reinstatement of, you know, a repetition of things that have happened. But instead of just teaching through this passage, we thought we'd just read it and, and comment briefly on it that, you know, the same things are happening that have been happening throughout Mark. It says they'd crossed over, they're, they're crossing the lake once again, the sea. They get to this, t this region called Gennesaret. They park, park the boat. Do you park a boat? Dock a boat. Is park legit? Yeah. Jack says yes, I'll believe it. Okay, you can park a boat. They park the boat. The people immediately recognized Jesus and ran about the whole region and began to bring sick people on their beds wherever they heard he was. So this has been the habit now. Jesus is trying to go about teaching, but everywhere he goes, his fame is spreading. They're like, this guy's a miracle worker. You have a problem, and this guy can fix it. Bring your sick to him. And so the whole town are bringing their sick on their beds to wherever they heard Jesus was. And, and wherever he came, villages, cities, countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, like that woman we read about a couple of chapters ago. And just like her, as many as touched his clothes were healed. So in this story, we're to see the same thing. This is just like the life and the rhythm of Jesus. He can't escape the crowds, but in his mercy and in his generosity, even and in his power, his crazy, miraculous power, even touching his clothes heals people. So there you go. The work continues there. But we get into chapter 7 then. We get into chapter 7, and, and, and there's a fresh conflict here. And so I will, I will read this. 
uh, once again. The Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who'd come from Jerusalem. And they saw that some of Jesus' disciples ate with hands that were defiled, or that is, unwashed. Um, and so we, I think we need to imagine here a scene. Crowds gathered around Jesus. Jesus is healing people. Maybe Jesus is trying to teach a little bit whenever he can get a moment of, of people listening. And in the middle of all this hustle and bustle, the Pharisees and the scribes come up to him, and, and they kind of start this side conversation. So it's kind of public. You could imagine, like, the crowd gathered around as these guys come up and begin to challenge Jesus. And they're frustrated that Jesus' disciples eat with unclean hands. And then Mark is really nice to us in verse 3. He gives us, like, some commentary on what the social dynamics were here that you and I in 2021 would not be aware of. Mark says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. That, that's good in 2021. We, we applaud that. Proper hand washing. And that was in holding to the tra tradition of the elders. Um, when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And, there are, and then he says, there are many other traditions like this that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels. Uh, and in some, some of your Bibles, it will have this phrase, dining couches. Some exclude it because it's a potential textual variant. But regardless, the point is, um, they wash their stuff before eating. And they do it literally religiously. They wash religiously uh, to keep, make sure that their hands and what they use are clean. Um, and so uh, the Pharisees in verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes ask Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to these traditions, to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? That's the question. Um, so... They're acting as though they have this genuine question. Teacher, teacher, we have a question for you. Why is it that your disciples do this? But, but I think really we're supposed to see they're trying to publicly shame Jesus here. Because you know that the, the tension's been building throughout Mark. In fact, the Pharisees have already got this plan that they want to kill Jesus. That's already been established. They hate Jesus. And so they're trying to publicly humiliate him, basically show that he's not a serious religious teacher because he doesn't even do these basic cleanliness traditions that everybody else does. That's what they're doing. Um, and they appeal to this, this tradition of the elders, which are these traditions that have developed over time. And we don't have too much specificity about them, but, but at some point previous, there had been these traditions where they're going to they're gonna, uh, take cleanliness very serious. And it's important to know that in the law, in the Torah, go back to the book, uh, the first five books of the Bible, uh, in the law that God gave through Moses, um, he had left these rules around, uh, around cleanliness. In fact, it required the priests, only the priests, who served at the tabernacle to wash their hands before they did particular things in the tabernacle. And so what this, tra this tradition basically came from the logic of, well, hey, if it's good for the priests to wash their hands, if that keeps them clean and pure before God, then everybody should just do it. We should all be washing our hands. Let's all do this. And so it extended the requirement beyond what Moses, what God had said through Moses, and it applied it to everybody. Uh, commentator David Garland said, what we see here is the Pharisees were striving for holiness above and beyond what even the law of God prescribed. That's what's happening. So there's now this tradition, everybody's doing it, and of course, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you want to be holy? Why wouldn't you want to be righteous uh, if you're serious about following God? So they, they, they have this question, why are your disciples not do this? 
Jesus didn't make his disciples do this. Why not? So that's the conflict about unclean hands. Now we get into the meat of the matter. We get into the meat of the matter. And I, I, I don't know if, if, if Jesus' reaction here feels surprising to you or if, if, you were li- if you were listening intently as Jeshua read it, if it struck you as, whoa, that escalated quickly, Jesus. But Jesus just launches. Like, his patience is done with these guys. And I don't know if you know, Jesus is an incredibly patient man, okay? Jesus is not hot-headed. But he launches in. He says, well did Isaiah, that's the Old Testament prophet, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Hey, whoa, we're just asking about washing hands, man. What's the big deal? <laughs> But well did Isaiah prophesy about you. And believe me, you don't ever want to be the person that Jesus looks in the eye and says, remember those horrible prophecies about how bad and unspiritual people were going to be? That's you. (laughs) You don't want to be in that seat. They're in that seat, Jesus says. He says, as it is written, this is in Isaiah. It's this quote from Isaiah 29, verse 13, if you're taking notes. The people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then he call, and before that he calls them hypocrites. That comes from the Greek, literally, uh, hypocrites, uh, hypocrites, hypocrites, like exactly where we get, get the English word hypocrites. It goes back to ancient Greek theater, to acting, to performance. Uh, to putting on a, a, a false uh, face. And it became a standard way to talk about godlessness, to talk about rebellious people, um, people who, exactly uh, like Isaiah puts it, whose, whose hearts are far, but their lips say they're close to God. Um, hypocrisy in the Bible, is very, it very much involves what most of us would think of when we think about the English word, which is saying one thing and doing another. And what you do is what actually reveals what's in your heart. Did you know that? What you do reveals what's in your heart. You say you love your spouse or your friend or your boss or your whoever. What you do <laughs> reveals what's in your heart over your words. Um, and this noun... This noun for hypocrisy, it occurs 17 times in the New Testament every single time from the lips of Jesus. Jesus hates hypocrisy. Our Jesus, our Lord, has a massive problem with religious hypocrisy. Hear that. So, he says, you're hypocrites. Uh, You're who Isaiah prophesied when he said your heart doesn't actually match up with what you say about God. And then... Verse 9, I feel like it gets even colder here. And he said to them, you have a fine way. Jesus is getting sarcastic here now. You have a fine way. You have a good way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. You've got a really nice, that's a real nice way you've got of rejecting God's commands for your own traditions, Jesus says. And once again, just notice, like, the religious hypocrites are always the ones, and this scares me as a pastor, okay? It really does. Uh, I, I apply this first to myself. Uh, uh, you know, Josh and myself are the two in the room. Maybe some of you otherwise work for minis- other ministries or whatever, but we're the two at this church who are religious professionals here, okay? Uh, which is a weird thing. Didn't think I'd ever be this. Um, and I note, 
religious hypocrites are the ones who get the sharpest responses from Jesus all the time in the Bible. And he, he gives an example of, of, of why, how it is that they've rejected the commandment of God. He says, for Moses says, honor your father and mother. Do you know where that comes from? Ten Commandments. This is central. This is central to Israel's religious identity. You could even say this is central to the heart of God, that you care for your father and your mother, and that whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Wow. That comes from the next chapter, Exodus 21. So, so there's a serious and clear call to honor your parents, okay? That's, that's, there are a few things as clear as that in the Old Testament. Honor your parents. But they've got a tradition now, one of these traditions, like the hand-washing thing, another tradition that, that had developed where one, here's what you could do. The, the law demanded that you financially supported your parents, like when they got into old age, when they needed it. That, that's what it, that was a very common, almost universal interpretation of what it means to honor your parents. What people would do is they would say, okay, I'm going to honor my parents uh, by giving them, I would like to honor my parents by giving them something, money or uh, land or whatever it is. I've got this thing. But you know what, you know what we can do? We can declare it Corbin or Corban. And what that means is it's dedicated to God. What I'm going to give to you, parents, is dedicated to God. And this is interesting because uh, you don't, if you dedicate something to God, you don't have to immediately give it to the temple or whatever. You can hang on to it for as long as you want. You're just knowing, this is set aside for God. And then, whenever the time actually does come, you're bound to give that thing to the temple. Maybe when you die or just before you die, you have to give it to the temple. Uh, but you've actually gotten to just keep it for yourself, functionally, until you've died. And the religious leaders actually had investment in keeping this tradition alive because like, well, this is great for us. We get stuff that might otherwise have gone to these parents. So you just see like all this kind of ugly corruption in this, in this practice. And maybe it started with a good heart. Of course it's good to dedicate things to the Lord. I'm committing, I'm going to give this thing to the Lord one day. Great, that's awesome. Uh, but it got twisted. Um, George Costanza from Seinfeld is one of my favorite characters on TV, still. Because I feel like he, he is like, he's like the apex of the vortex of human selfishness, like in one character. And may, maybe Larry David from Curb Your Enthusiasm has supplanted him. He's the cruder version, I guess. Uh, uh, but, but, but George Costanza uh, is always, like, every plot involving him is like him just eschewing basic human decency uh, <laughs> to just be selfish and weird. Um, and there was this one episode of Seinfeld where he was so offended that someone gave him a gift. You remember this? Gave him a gift of a donation to a charity in his name. You remember that? They gave him a donation to a charity, like, hey, we've made a donation in, in the name of George Costanza. And he's just railing it. He's so offended. He's so frustrated about it. And so he decides, you know what? I'm going to start doing this. This is genius, actually. And he creates a fake charity called the Human Fund. Uh, the, the tagline was, money for people. <laughs> <laughs> he creates the Human Fund to give people fake gifts so that he doesn't actually have to give every, anyone a Christmas present. It's genius. I'm going to start doing that with my family. It's going to be amazing. Now, you know, deep down, we are all George Costanza. I feel like that's, that's true. Um, 
that captures the spirit of what's going on here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to honor my parents. I've set this aside for them. But you know what? Wouldn't it be even more holy to give this to God much later? Like, <laughs> way later. Maybe around the time that I die. Wouldn't that be better? Uh, a, one commentator, T.W. Mason, he said, A man goes through the formality of vowing something to God, not that he may give it to God, but in order to prevent some other person from having it. That's what that is. I'm giving this to God, not to honor God, but just so nobody else gets it. Jesus says, this is horrible. You're doing all this. Then verse, verse 12, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. You make him keep this promise to give it, give it to the temple. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. You have actually, you have a, a tradition now that's trying to like add to the law of God that is now making it actually quite feasible for more and more people to actually neglect the real law of God. And now there's going to be a lot of aging people in this community that are suffering because the one safety net they were supposed to have, which is their children, are now too holy to care for them. This is pretty dark. This is actually pretty dark. And it gets worse. Last line. And many such things you do. Jesus is like, this is one example of many things that you do. There's a term that maps pretty cleanly onto what Jesus is describing here that I'm sure you've heard. Legalism. Heard legalism. Um, it's important to know what legalism isn't before we define what legalism is. So, um, legalism, I want to be very clear about this. Legalism is not any call to obedience to the genuine laws of God. Um, in fact, Jesus in John 14, 15 says, if you love me, do you know? Anybody? You'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Again, what we do is actually the best indicator of what's in here. Um, caring about holiness or Christ-likeness or sanctification in ways that flow out of the gospel is not legalism. Um, and we, I just, we have to note, especially in a context like ours here in Portland, that some Christians in their rush to condemn legalism, which we're going to get there, legalism needs to be condemned. Quite full stop. Legalism needs to be condemned. But in a rush to condemn legalism, we end up rejecting any place for obeying Jesus, which is crazy. Obedience is how we express love. It's a key component of being a disciple. And because the church is at its best, supposed to be the first fruit and a foretaste of the coming kingdom of God. Like when people look at churches, they're supposed to see people genuinely living, of course with sin and failure and forgiveness, but genuinely living to some degree in the ethics of his kingdom. Like, as a preview of what it's going to be like when Jesus puts everything right. We're supposed to get like a fractured preview of that in our churches. Because the church is supposed to be the first fruit and a foretaste of the kingdom, our church is a preview in some dim way of what life will be like when Jesus reigns. So, of course, we're to live by the ethics of his kingdom now. This is what the Holy Spirit more and more enables us to do over the course of our lives. So, I just want to connect the dot here. If you care about goodness, 
and justice in the world, and I hope you do, I hope you care about the practical outworking of justice in every sphere of our world, you have to care about obedience. They're, they're just inseparably, inseparably intertwined. Obedience is just justice in our personal lives. It's living justly in accordance with what God's revealed. So, as we, we're about to go hard on legalism, I don't want you to hear in that like a rejection of the idea of obeying Jesus. Okay, so what is it? Well, there's a lot of facets to it. You could define it a number of ways. But, but first of all, I think it, it, it involves this idea that, or a belief that you can actually keep the law of God well enough to earn God's favor. That's the answer that every moralistic religion, which is most religions, uh, provide. What is the relationship between salvation or uh, eternal life or heaven or uh, personal reward or karmic reward or whatever? What's the relationship between that and how we act? Well, you just have to act good enough. You have to act right enough. You have to uh, be a good enough law-abiding citizen in a spiritual sense to earn the favor of God or whoever else is pulling the strings behind the curtain. That's legalism. Believing you can keep the law well enough to earn God's favor, and Jesus has none of that. So this spoiler alert, you can't do it. You can't do it. A second facet is this, um, and this usually flows out of the first one, but it's creating and enforcing laws that go beyond what God has required. So that's exactly what we see here. We're going to create stricter laws that are going to make us more holy, uh, but it almost always undercuts the actual purpose of God's real laws when you do that. Because we're bad lawmakers. We just are. So I don't know what this looks like specifically in our context. I don't, I don't know that, that churches in Portland generally are hyper, are bastions of legalism. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that we are, but we do have our own things, certainly. Um, I can, think, I can think specifically about the way churches highlight particular sins as worse than others. You know, yeah, yeah, there's grace for all, but if you're, if you're doing this, is there grace? I'm just posing the question. Is there grace? I think alcohol is a really clear example. I'm not, I don't think Portland churches got too into this version of legalism, but you know, scripture, the scripture's clear. Um, alcohol is a gift from God, uh, and if, if you choose to use it, which many of us probably should not, that's fair, but if you choose to use it, use it in moderation, uh, in ways that don't impinge on your self-control and your ability to actually be obedient to God. Uh, yeah, addiction and drunkenness are always condemned in the scripture, but Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding, right? Uh, but Many churches have created legalistic parameters around alcohol. Like, if I ever see you with a sip of beer, you are out of here. Again, not really Portland. I come from the Bible Belt, though. Uh, so we weren't allowed to have alcohol at our wedding because I was on staff at the church. Um, still a little bitter about that. Um, um, so that's one. I, I, you see legalism kind of swirl there. And again, usually for good reason. People... Lots of people abuse alcohol. Probably some of us in this room have abused, do abuse, or will abuse alcohol, and we ought not to as followers of Jesus. I'm not trying to downplay that, but creating and enforcing laws that go beyond what God himself has required creates problems. 
Um, I, think, I think for us, one of the biggest ways this plays out is in political tribalism. Um, and again, it's different here than it was, say, in the Bible Belt, but we all have like, these versions in our head of like, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you must vote this way. Uh, and if you don't, it just shows you're not serious about Jesus. It just shows you're not serious about Jesus. And uh, I think that quite clearly comes on both sides of the equation. You've got the progressive version and the conservative version of that, where you just can't possibly conceive of how someone with half a brain and a love for Jesus and a Bible would vote that way. Uh, and, so, and if you hear about it, you're like, I don't want anything to do with that person. I'm ashamed of that person. Um, once again, I think how we vote ought to be something as believers we take seriously, seriously, seriously. But uh, I hope we can all recognize the way our political environment has carved up the issues across two parties, neither of them sync up perfectly with the will of the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Okay, I will beat that drum forever. Um, Because uh, when we lose sight of that, it gets really, really ugly. That's not saying we shouldn't care deeply about real issues. I just think all of us should care a lot more deeply about a lot more issues than our current political affiliation will let us. Amen? I think that's a form of legalism. I think that's a serious form of legalism, especially in Portland churches. Um, And I'm probably guilty of it at some point. Call me on it if you feel that I am. There you go. There's some examples. We We could create more. But... Something really interesting, and Tim Keller is probably the best person I've ever read on this. He beats this drum constantly, but legalism, and then what we talked about at first, libertinism, kind of the idea that in Christ, everything's fair game, and there's no rules, and just do whatever you want. They're equal and opposite temptations away from the gospel. One's not better than the other. A lot of times in Portland, we run towards libertinism because we're like, well, legalism is obviously really lame and bad, and it is but we don't recognize the danger on this side either. Um, They're both equal and opposite temptations to leave the gospel of Jesus. Here's a point that Mark and Jesus want us to not forget. Legalism can never save you. And more often than not, it will get in the way of genuinely following Jesus. That's the lesson of this story. So, it goes on. Commandments versus traditions or legalism. But he he keeps going. Verse 14. So in the middle of this debate, he's gone harsh. He's gone hard on the Pharisees. And then in the middle of this, I, I imagine this made them so mad. Can you imagine you're having this debate? Yeah, yeah, you guys are hypocrites. You don't get it. You're violating what God really wants with your silly traditions. Then he turns to the crowd Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. That's a pretty, I feel like that's, like Jesus is so feisty here. Just like debate, debate. Here's the principle, everyone, in case you weren't paying attention. That's the principle. That's what this whole passage is building to there in verse 15. Now he's just going to explain it. So later, verse 17, notice verse 16 is missing. Isn't that interesting? There's a textual variant uh, that, that basically most scholars believe was not original to the text that 
you know, you can find it if you, maybe when your Bibles have it in a footnote, uh, but that, uh, yeah, it, it, you'll see it's not that significant, even if it, whether it's included or not doesn't make a big, big bit of difference, but it is very funny when you're reading a Bible and you're like, where's verse 16? Who's trying to hide from, hide the truth from me or whatever? Um, verse 16 is probably not original to the Gospel of Mark. Anyway, verse 17. So they enter a house, this is later, and they left the people. They, leave, they get away from the crowd, they're now in a house. And the disciples asked him about this parable. And that's kind of funny, I don't know, I don't, is it really a parable? The defiling, thing? I'm not sure. I think that clues us in, I'm like, the disciples are just really confused about what Jesus is getting at here. Tell us about the parable, Jesus. And he says to them, he said to them, then are you also without understanding? He's like, you guys too? Come on, get with it. He's fired up about this stuff. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? And Jesus gets graphic here. Since it enters not his heart, it doesn't, and in Hebrew and, and, and a biblical Greek, this idea of the heart, it's the center of your being. It's like the, the inner person. It's like the controlling seat of all of your life. The heart is so important. He says, whatever you eat doesn't touch your heart. Um, it enters not the heart, but the stomach, and then is expelled. In the Greek, it's literally, and then goes out into the latrine. So, poop talk. Um, <laughs> so Jesus, <laughs> there's a lot of poop talk in our household these days. We've got a two and a five-year-old. Like, no poop talk, guys. That's exactly what, if, Lane, if Lane's watching online right now, he'd be like, hey, you can't talk about that stuff, okay? <laughs> Whatever goes in does not touch the heart. It goes in the stomach, and then it's expelled, literally, out into the latrine. And then Mark gives us another editorial comment here. He provides some commentary. With this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Because if that's true, if it's true that nothing that you eat affects your heart, it just goes out, it's in one side, out the other, then it is true that all food then is clean in terms of cleanliness before God. Um, so, don't miss this. With this statement, we see Jesus actually abrogated or set aside the Old Testament food laws. So, you know, next time someone's like, well, you believe the Bible, but you're not obeying, you know, the Jewish dietary laws, you can just say, well, Mark chapter 7, verse 19. Jesus, in all of his authority as the Son of God, set aside those laws. And Peter would have this vision doing the same thing in the book of Acts that's really amazing. And then Paul would write about it at length as well. But here Jesus takes the authority of God himself. And he declares that this part of the Torah, these food laws that were key parts, kind of Israel's religious identity, that these are no longer binding on the people of God who are in Jesus. And this was a massive step as well towards lowering the divisions and erasing the divisions between different ethnic groups, between Jews and Gentiles. So the implications here are what enables actually to have this, this beautiful vision of every tribe and tongue and nation and race and ethnicity coming together without division in the kingdom of God, 
which has been his plan from the beginning to the end. This is a massive piece of that becoming a reality, at least a, a further reality. So this is huge. Don't sail by that. But the fundamental point here is that nothing you eat, nothing you put into your body in that way is the source of what makes you unclean. Because it's really easy when you've got all these laws that, well, if I just wash my hands, everything will be fine. If I just eat the right things, everything will be fine. He says, no, no, no. The issue is your unclean heart. That's the source of our sin and defilement. The center of who you are. And that doesn't negate the fact that God made people and he made them good. And we still have that basic dignity bestowed on us by our creator, made in his image. That never goes away despite our sin. So we don't want to overstate this, but nonetheless, all of us who are tainted by sin, which is all of us, it's not something exterior foisted upon us. It just comes from right here, outward. At least Jesus claims. That's what Jesus claims. Um, and this idea that it comes from the ends from the heart, it almost works as a commentary on so many of Jesus' teachings. Like, you know, think about the Sermon on the Mount. He has this regular formula. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Uh, verses 5, 21, 21 and 22 says, Jesus says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And that's good. Don't murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus is saying like, look, don't worry about whether you've killed people or not. Of course, don't kill people, right? But the issue is, are you, it's, it's all right here. Murdering someone doesn't just pop out of a vacuum. It starts with an angry, vicious heart that any of us can carry far before we've murdered somebody. Jesus loved getting past the surface into the heart. Jesus' point is quit looking outside of your own heart for the source of your sin. If Satan and his demons were gone tomorrow, the world would still experience untold amounts of sin, evil, and injustice because we are a massive part of the problem. And when I say we, I mean me first. I'm a massive part of the problem, every bit of evil in this world. Jesus says, you're thinking about the external, I'm here to do heart surgery. And he's, this reminds us of the danger of treating symptoms without dealing with root causes. There's a massive problem in all sorts of areas. I think the opioid crisis that our country is dealing with is in large part due to this very thing. People come to the doctor for all kinds of reasons, real reasons, real pain, real excruciating physical pain that's like negatively, horribly impacting their lives. They say, doctor, I need, I need relief. I need some meds. Help me. I'm suffering. And many doctors say, okay, here's what we'll do. Take this, take this serious, serious painkiller, uh, and I'll basically give you a lifetime prescription, uh, and that'll, that'll, you'll be fine. And, you know, meanwhile, the real issue that you came for, say it's a shoulder that's just blasted, it's just causing you untold amounts of pain. What happens whenever for the rest of your life you just keep numbing that pain? 
well, then you're more likely to exercise it, do things that you shouldn't do, do things that actually prohibit the real healing of that thing, of that symptom, that pain ever going away, right? It's, it starts with a good heart. Yeah, 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 we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll mask that pain. But if you, if you don't do that in an incredibly controlled and intentional and limited way, you end up making the actual problem worse. And people think, oh, I'm healed. I'm healed. I don't have any pain anymore. But now, uh, actually, the real issue is worse. And now you're addicted to opioids. Um, and I, I, I don't assume in this room that, like, there's not someone in here that's actually s- seriously struggling with, like, addiction to pills. And if you are, I just say, there's grace for you, there's hope for you, don't hear this as like condemnation. We've got a really messed up like medical system in a lot of ways that contributes to that. Like, don't feel shame about that. Uh, talk to me about that. I'll pray for you. I'll, you know, we'll talk about it, we'll process it, whatever. Like, so don't, don't hear condemnation there. Um, I'm just saying, that doesn't fix the issue. The same thing happens in mental health as well. And, and hear me very clearly. I'm actually, I'm a huge advocate for good counseling, good therapy. Um, it is, it, I think it's part of God's common grace in our world that those things exist. Um, and I believe there are good and necessary uses for mental health medications as well. So, got that? I believe that. You can disagree with me. I, that's what I think. Um, but antidepressants can easily fall into that same spiral. I'm depressed. Things are really hard. I'm really struggling. Maybe I'm struggling with suicidal ideation. With doctor, if, if they're not nuanced and they're not careful, oh, I've got, here's some antidepressants. That will fix your issue. It's the exact same thing. You're still suffering, but suddenly you've got a chemical like block to actually experiencing the depth of your suffering and whatever it is that's actually causing you those problems might not ever get addressed if your therapist isn't good. You know what I mean? Um, this is a massive problem in our culture, treating the symptom rather than the root issue. And it actually can have really devastating consequences for us. Outward protocols, they, have, they had value and they have value, but they had it for a time. These food laws, they're not, it's not like they were evil. God gave them for a reason, to distinguish his people, create a sense of set-apartness, um, there are all kinds of reasons God gave these food laws. Don't say, those were bad. Jesus saw that they were bad. No, he, that's not what he's saying. They had value for a time, but he has come to deal with the heart. He has come to deal with the heart. It's almost like Jesus is saying, why are we talking about food? Why are we talking about food? If you really care about goodness and justice and peace and flourishing in this world, let's talk about evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. You know where all those things come from? Right here. Doesn't matter what you had for breakfast. And it doesn't matter how many times you wash your hands. It's in you. It's in me. It's in us. So how's your heart? What comes out of your heart? I think we'd be foolish to read this and not ask that question. That's what this this is begging us to ask. 
What do your actions reveal about your heart? I'm guessing for most of in this room, most of us in this room, we've got traces of every one of these things somewhere. And I don't, think we have, I don't think we have to do the work to neatly define all these. I think Jesus is giving a broad representative list here that was meant to be kind of taken as a whole. But we all have these evil thoughts. We're tempted sexually to misuse our sexuality. We're tempted to steal what doesn't belong to us. We're tempted to murder. We're tempted to cheat, to practice adultery. We're tempted to envy what others have. We're tempted to evilness. We're tempted to lying and deceit. We're tempted to ev- evaluating sensuality over our core values in the kingdom. We're tempted to jealousy. We're tempted to speak ill of others. We're tempted to foolishness. We're tempted to pride. We could go on and on and on and on. What I would submit to you is that we all fall under the condemnation of what Jesus has to say here. And some of those might strike you as more or less serious than others. Some of those you might be like, why does Jesus care about that? I know why he cares about this one, this one, this one, because I happen to care about those things too. (laughs) Because my social media feed has informed me that I need to care about those things too. But why does he care about that? Well, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. God declares each of these to be enough to separate us from him. Here's the bad news. We're all terminal, and no amount of hand-washing or rule-making will fix it. That's what Jesus is claiming here. You can take offense at that. That's okay. You can disagree with that. That's okay. That's what Jesus claims. That's the condition, says Jesus, of humanity. Now, here's the good news. That is the exact reason And Mark doesn't get there. The story ends here, and we have another really interesting, amazing story that flows out of this next week, but Jesus just leaves it there. All this junk comes out of your heart. And we're like, okay, but, (laughs) like, I won't wash my hands again, I guess, but uh, uh, what are we doing, Jesus? We have to wait a few chapters for Mark, Mark to get us there. In fact, even Mark leaves it enigmatic at the end of his gospel. But we know the whole reason Jesus came was to die to forgive your sins. Every inch of that in your heart says forgiven. Every bit of uncleanness declared white as snow. And not just to forgive the sin, but there was this promise. You know, one way you can think about the storyline of the Bible is to think about the different covenants God has made with his people. Some believe there was a covenant, doesn't use that language, a covenant with Adam, covenant with Noah, covenant with Moses. Uh, Abraham before that. Abraham, Moses, covenant with David. And then after David, there's this hope for, for is there going to be a, a covenant that will actually work? Because, um, God's been faithful this whole time, but humanity keeps staying mired in the same messes. And there was this promise that started to emerge in the prophets of this new covenant. Ezekiel 11 puts it this way, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. Notice, 
People can't keep the rules. He says, one day I will actually change the heart so that then the question of rules can follow out of that rather than the corrupt hearts that we have. That they may keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. This is the hope. One of the passages talks about the hope of the new covenant that would come. And that's what Jesus came to bring. You go do a study on the new covenant, you'll see how all these ways in which Jesus fulfilled it. But Paul points out in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That is new covenant language. How do we deal with this? Jesus says there's only one way. It's to come to me, accept what I have done on your behalf, and I will take that heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. And that doesn't mean you're going to be sinlessly perfect from here on out in this life. That day will come in the new heavens and the new earth. But we're still going to be fumbling our way around. But in the core of who you are, you've been transformed, made new. And for all your sin, past, present, future, you'll be forgiven. Forgiven as well. So implicit in this passage is this, it leaves you with this cliffhanger. Like, then what do we do? And he says, it's in me. You don't have to do anything. I'm doing it. That's the point of the cross. I'm going to it so you don't have to. And then in that cross, if you will simply trust me, believe in me, throw your allegiance to me, however you want to put it, you find the forgiveness of sins, a new heart, a seat in his eternal family made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation as part of his kingdom and a future hope of eternal life. This is what Jesus offers. It's the answer to the fundamental human dilemma, which is what do I do with this thing? He says, come to me. Come to me.